You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Yeshua in the Torah, presented by Justin Hibbard. Well, today we conclude our series on Yeshua in the Torah, Jesus in the Old Testament, with a look at Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. The word Messiah comes from Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed or his anointed one. It's the word anointed one that when we translate that to Hebrew, it's the word Mashiach. And from that, if it was translated into Greek, we get the word Christos, which is the same word where we get the word Christ. So Christ is actually not Jesus' last name. It's Jesus' title. When we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. You know, Messianic prophecies, I mean, there's lots of prophecies in the Bible, but Messianic prophecies are spread throughout the Bible. And it's a central focus of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And the Jewish scholars understood this. They understood that there was a promise of one who would come to redeem Israel. And we read about the first Messianic prophecy all the way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, where it says, and I will, this is God speaking to the serpent. Remember the serpent who, Satan, who tempted Adam and Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And as someone who believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah, I look at this verse, and I say, it's very clear to me that this prophecy is about the coming of Jesus when once and for all he crushes Satan, though it costs him his life. But for Gentiles like us, maybe we don't come to understand the Messianic prophecy. Maybe, uh, or at least we do at some point, but generally we're not looking at the Messianic prophecy and saying, that's it, Jesus is the fulfillment, I believe in him. A lot of us, that comes much later in life, but Jesus fulfills an immediate need in our life, which is why we give our life to him. In a way, I think it, it sort of um, echoes the story, or, or maybe the story of uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe echo us and our adventure into the experience of Narnia and walking in on a story that's already going on and in some cases not really having a clue of the depth of it. So uh, watch this video clip and you'll see sort of what I'm talking about here. So uh, you know the story, they, they get caught up in the story of Narnia and realize that it involves them. And they're scared about it because they, don't, they didn't picture that. They were sent there to that mansion because they wanted to, be, to avoid the war. We're not heroes, they said. Well, to understand prophecy, I'm going to actually approach it a little differently today. I want to talk about the significance of it. We could talk about all of the different prophecies, but there's a significance that we have to understand, the significance of odds and evidences. And so I've asked Warren if he would come up and give me a hand this morning. And the first way that I want to explain um, the significance of prophecy is to understand a game of poker. I know, I know. know. (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) so in a game of poker, and we're going to look at a game like Texas Hold'em. Now, I know, it's very odd that we would look at a game of Texas Hold'em. But trust me, you'll understand where I'm going with this in just a minute. Now, in a game of Texas Hold'em, each of the players are dealt two cards, and then the board has five cards that all the players use. And what you do is you take your best five cards and hope that your cards win. But in a game like any other game of poker, it's all about how you play your hand, like the Kenny Rogers song. You've got to know when to hold them, when to fold them, when to walk away, when to run, right? So 
So in a so in in a game of poker, knowing when to uh, throw the chips out and when not to is key in how you tell your players about what you have and how you think you're going to play and what you think about your own hand and the winners of it. So I've asked Warren to play a simulated game of poker with me. He does not know he does not know what hand he is getting. So good luck to you. <laughs> but I do. <laughs> so. <laughs> I feel like I might be at a slight disadvantage. <laughs> all right, so you are not going to see my cards, but we can all see your cards, okay? okay. But I'm going to play as though you've never, as though I've never seen your cards, okay? Sure all right, so, so, <laughs> so here are your cards. How do you feel about them? I like them. Okay, so the first thing we do is uh, you have the blind. You're in. Are you fold? I'm in. Okay. Do you raise? Probably. Okay. So I'm actually, I'm going to raise uh, pot minimum. And you know how I play mm-hmm. from our limited times play. Yes. You know, that, you know that I generally, I'm not a good poker player. I don't have the spiritual gift of gambling. And so, <laughs> and, and so I really only play, this is why I'm not a good poker, because I really only play if I think I have a hand that can win. I am not a bluffer. Okay. So here's your hand. So you saw that I raised. Are you staying in? Well, playing with you, I probably wouldn't. I, no, I, I, I might stay to see the flop. Okay, here's the flop. So here's our flop. <laughs> are you in or out? Uh, I'll are check. You're you going to check? Okay, I'm going to raise three times pot minimum. I'm probably out. <laughs> okay. You're what if I told you, Warren, that this is your... Oh, you can't look at my cards. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So you saw my cards. I did, yeah. So you, you saw they're pretty good. So you probably figured that I had those cards anyways, right? Or someone uh, has those Something cards. close to that, yeah. Okay, all right. So what if I told you, though, your next card was a king of spades? What are you riding on now? Well, now I have a potential draw to flush. Okay, so you have a potential, a potential flush, a potential royal flush, right? Yeah, yes. But now would you stay in even if I went all in here to see that last card? I would not. Okay. What if I told you? What if I could guarantee you that the next card was a jack of spades? Well, then, of course, I'd stay. Okay, so you'd stay. Yeah. Because you'd stay knowing that your chances of getting that is 1 in 649,000 in a game in a game of Texas Hold'em, right? The only way I'd stay is if you guaranteed it. <laughs> That's right. How do you feel about playing the Mega Millions? Yeah. <laughs> Because that's one in 175 million for the chance of winning the odds there. All right, so let's, uh, let's go to a different um, expertise that you have, and that is the courtroom, okay? You defend cri- allegedly, cri- allegedly criminals. <laughs> Alleged criminals. <laughs> and in a courtroom, let's say, hypothetically, um, that your client was charged with murder, and that we, we had, or the, the prosecution had the murder weapon, in your client's possession, they had the fingerprint, your client's fingerprint, on the murder weapon. They had DNA of the victim on the murder weapon. They had a witness that say, said they saw him do it. And they had a surveillance picture of your client in the area. Is that your client, by the way? I, I can okay. never confirm or deny that. <laughs> I just, it's it's kind of fuzzy. <laughs> so what would you advise your client to do? Plea. Plea? <laughs> What, what do you think the prosecution would do in this case? Uh, they probably wouldn't give me a very good offer. Okay. Do you think they would take it to trial at all? Uh, I think they would likely, if, if, 
if I wouldn't plead to the top count, they probably would take this case to trial, yes. Okay. So the evidence looks pretty strong, right? Yes. So let's say, let's take a few of the components away. Let's say there's no fingerprint, there's no DNA, there's no witness. Now, tell me about the, the, what is the weakest form of the evidence that was up there? The eyewitness is the weakest form. Why is that? Because uh, people are, um, they make mistakes. Okay. More than, more than the scientific evidence does. Okay, so in this case, let's say that they just have a murder weapon, no fingerprints, no DNA. They think this is the murder weapon. They have a picture of your client in the vicinity. How does your client look now? Better. Okay. What do you think the offer might be? Uh, depending on who the prosecutor is, uh, it, it could be anywhere between a, uh, a, a manslaughter offer to a second-degree murder offer. Okay. So really, making a case depends on having all of the different components of evidence. And the stronger the evidence, the, the, the least likely they are to give your client a good offer. Yes. Because they're pretty confident that they can get a guilty plea. Right? Correct. All right, cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. So when we look at messianic prophecy, it's good to look at it in the terms of odds and evidences. And that's why I showed you the poker hand and talked about you know, the odds of winning the lottery. And you'll understand where I'm going with that in just a minute. But let's look at the evidences that's presented to us in Old Testament prophecy. Now, keep in mind, I'm going to, throw, I'm going to show you six pieces of evidence, six prophecies. And we could argue about whether or not these refer to Jesus. In fact, many people do. But what we can't argue about is the time of them, because that's been independently proved. I'm going to throw up a passage from Isaiah and say it's from 700 B.C., and there's really no question that it's from 700 B.C. So the first one we'll look at is Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's from 700 B.C. In Isaiah 37, 31, 700 years before Christ's birth, he will reign on David's throne. And in Genesis 49, 2, 1,400 years, by the way, this is what it was written, 1,400 years before the time of Jesus, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And we know that Jesus comes from the line of David and from the line of Judah. If we look in Isaiah 7.14, probably one of the most compelling prophecies, 700 years before the time of Jesus, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will uh, be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. In Micah 5.2, in 600 BC, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And in Jeremiah 23, 5, in 600 B.C., the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. These are just six messianic prophecies that have to do with Jesus' birth, though there are many others. But you might have a question like this. How do I know that you're not just reading into these prophecies, that you're just finding passages that seem to relate to Jesus' life and then calling them messianic prophecies. Well, the reason I know that is because these are considered to be messianic prophecies. We know that because in Matthew, when the Magi come to visit and worship the Messiah, 
they stop in, in Jerusalem and, and visit with Herod and ask Herod, where is the Messiah? He was born. We saw his star. We've come to worship him. And Herod, he consults the chief priests. He consults the scribes. And he asks them, where is the Messiah to be born? And what do they say? They quote that exact passage in Micah 5.2. And they say, in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they understood, they knew that this was a, this was a messianic prophet, prophecy, even though many of them would later reject Jesus as the Messiah. Not only that, but there are prophecies that are very explicitly, uh, that are very explicitly point to Jesus, and it's hard to deny them. There's a woman named Edith Schaefer, and Edith Schaefer was the wife of the late, great Francis Schaefer, the 20th century, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. And Edith wrote a book called Christianity is Jewish, which many of you may at least be familiar with the name, if not the book. And in her book, Edith tells a story. She lived in, in Europe, and they were friends with many Jewish, uh, Jewish people, and they would, they would minister to them. And one time they had a conversation with a friend, a Jewish friend, and, she, and they were talking about Messianic prophecy. And she said to them, she said, I want to read you a passage, and I want you to understand something. This is from the prophet Isaiah. It is in your Hebrew scriptures, and it was written 700 in 700 B.C. And I want you, I'm going to read this passage to you, and I want you to tell me who this, who this is about. And so she read Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And without hesitating, that person told Edith Schaefer, oh, it's easy, that's about Jesus. And then he stopped because he realized what he had said. The prophecy was so clear. And if it is a messianic prophecy, if this is about Jesus, then that has some real implications. We might say, well, what if this was just an elaborate hoax? What if all of this was just fiction? Some people writing some stories. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. I mean, for one, we're talking about a long period of time where these prophecies are going on, and there's a lot of prophecies that are out of Jesus' control. He can't, you know, especially when in regards to his death, which some of the prophecies are so explicitly clear, especially in Psalm where it talks about being pierced, not having any bones broken, things like that. But another thing that stands out to me is that in Luke chapter 2, in Luke chapter 2, when he begins to talk about the story of the birth of Jesus, he goes into great detail. He says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, he issued a census. And this census was to take place for all of the Roman world. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And each went to his hometown. So Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, went from Nazareth in Galilee to the city of David, Bethlehem, because he was from the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. 
and was expecting a child. Now, all of those, that, that's a mouthful, but it's filled with facts. I mean, look at all the facts that are in here, historical facts, facts that we could look up and find information to about Caesar Augustus, about the particular census that was taken, about the governor of Syria. And if this was a census, then there was public records involved as well. Not only that, but in, when, we look at these, um, when we look at these passages, a lot of times they throw out names. Names of insignificant people, or people that we wouldn't really think twice about. And uh, they do that so that we know who they are, so that we can, if we were living at the time, we could actually interview these people and find out about them. So one of the guys is this guy, Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene is mentioned by name in three of the Gospels. And he's the one that was told by the Romans to carry Jesus' cross because Jesus was too weak. He was beaten up pretty badly and couldn't carry his, his cross to Golgotha. And so they mentioned Simon of Cyrene's name. Well, there's really nothing that important about Simon of Cyrene on the face value other than he actually did it. And if he actually did it, then he's actually alive. And we could, if we had questions about how accurate is the story, we could go and ask him, did you actually carry Jesus' cross? In fact, this is not the only guy that happens to. There are tons and tons of names that are listed in the Gospels. You might say, well, people make predictions all the time, psychics, things like that. What makes this one so special? Well, you can't walk in the uh, grocery store without seeing this guy's face, right? Nostradamus. He's there. He's always some end-of-the-world prediction, or he predicted something. And um, I, I really never gave any thought to it until... Uh, this week I was doing research and thinking about, and there's a lot of people that really put a lot of weight in Nostradamus who lived around the 1500s and had all these supposedly prophecies. And they even say that he predicted um, Hitler was going to lead Germany in kind of in, in the world um, conquest. And I thought, well, that's interesting if that's the case. So I, I went ahead and looked at what he actually said. Here's what he said. He said, beasts ferocious with hunger will cross the rivers the greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister. Into a cage of iron will the great one be drawn when the child brother observes nothing. I get Germany out of that, don't you? I mean, <laughs> clear as mud. Actually, what's interesting is that people change the word Hister to Hitler, and when they're looking at the, the Latin, the, word, the Latin word for child brother is Germain, and they read Germany into it. So if you read into it, then you can get all sorts of wonderful things. But on the face value, it seems kind of vague. Um, many of you lived during this woman's time, Jean Dixon. Does this, this look familiar to anyone? I, I wasn't alive. I don't know. But she was, she was one of the prominent psychics of the day. And it was interesting because she actually predicted John F. Kennedy was going to be elected president in the 1960 election, which was quite a feat. Not a lot of people thought that was going to happen. And she actually said that he was going to die in office. Well... Shortly after she made this prediction, she actually predicted that Richard Nixon was going to win the 1960 election. So she had a 100% chance of being right. <laughs> she also predicted that World War III would start in 1954, that Fidel Castro would be expelled from Cuba in 1970, and that Jacqueline Kennedy would not remarry, and the next day, Jacqueline Kennedy announced her engagement to Aristotle Onassis. In fact, in the 1950s, they did a study on the major psychics and how... How, were they, how often were they right? And it turns out that they were right a whopping 6% of the time. Some of us watched the weather report 
and they're right like 94% of the time, and at 6% that they're wrong, we're like, they are worthless, right? (laughs) So you can imagine putting your trust in someone that's right 6% of the time. You know, all of these individuals, they're one individuals, they're one individual, and a lot of times they're prophesying or predicting something about some, and, and different events. So one person predicting lots of events. What's, which is, what's interesting about Messianic prophecy, it's the opposite. We have over 10 authors, different prophets, predicting the coming of the Messiah. And that's a conservative number. Not only just over 10 predicting the, the coming of the Messiah, but there's 100 different predictions that have to do with Messi- the, the coming of the Messiah and that being fulfilled in Jesus. And whereas when we talk about Nostradamus, we're talking about a lifetime, or Gene Dixon, we're talking about a lifetime, we're talking about prophecy that spans from about 1,400 years before the time of Jesus to about 400 years before the time of Jesus. 1,000 years of messianic prophecy. But the greatest, the greatest thing about all of this is to understand that prophets were held to a very, very high standard because when they spoke, they were saying, this is the word of the Lord. And to say something is the word of the Lord, and we're told throughout Scripture that the word of the Lord never fails. So to say something is the word of the Lord and then have that not come true, that's a problem. That's called blasphemy. They are considered a false prophet, and they would be executed. But with these prophecies, with what we have in Scripture, they are 100% accurate. You might say, well, how do I know that these prophecies are fulfilled by Jesus and don't point to someone else? I mean, we see Jesus, but what if there was some guy named Ned who lived around some time and that had to be fulfilled in Jesus? Well, we've only looked at a few prophecies. There's a lot of other ones, like in the book of Daniel, that talks about the exact date of the coming of the Messiah, the, the 70 weeks and things like that, which we, um, which we won't get into today. But I will say this. When we've thrown out a lot of, a lot of numbers, we've thrown out the number of like 1 in 649,000, the chance of getting a royal flush in a hand of poker or playing the mega millions and going one in 175 million. Well, some statisticians, some mathematicians, people who are way smarter than I am, went through all of the messianic prophecies and determined the odds of every single one and then, and then added those odds together. And here's what they came up with. One to the 10th to the 57th, that this is anyone other than Jesus. That's one with 300 zeros behind it. So... You know, you talk about, well, I'm not going to play, I'm, I'm not going to play that, I'm not going to continue playing my hand of poker because I'm just not sure that the that jack of spades is the next card. Well, putting your faith in anyone other than Jesus as the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy is seemingly ludicrous. In fact, it's so ludicrous. It's like taking a state of Texas and in the state of Texas, filling it up with silver dollars. This might help the economy, actually. If we filled it up with silver dollars... And we filled it up to the point where it's two feet thick all the way across the state of Texas. That's a lot of silver dollars. Then, take one silver dollar and mark it in some way, color it pink, put a Sharpie on it. It doesn't matter. But put it somewhere in that mix. And then take a guy and blindfold him and say, you have one shot, find the marked silver dollar. That's That's how improbable, if not impossible, it is to say that any of these prophecies would would be fulfilled by anyone else other than Jesus. But the most important question we can have is this question. What does this have to do with me? And that is the question that 
Peter and Lucy and Edmund, uh, the, the kids in the story of the line, the witch in the wardrobe ask. They found a wardrobe. Remember the story? They found a wardrobe. Lucy goes into it. She discovers this world, Narnia. And it's beautiful. And it's awesome. And it's like, wow, this is way better than the game of hide-and-go-seek we were playing. This is great. And she tells her, her family and her siblings don't believe her until they experience the story of Narnia. But even when they're there, they still, I mean, to them it's beautiful, it's wonderful. This is so neat and fascinating. And then they discovered that there's a story that's been going on, a story that pre-exists them, a story where there's spells involved and there's the wicked white witch and her spell to keep it always cold, always winter and never Christmas. And then they realize that there's a war, a conflict, something going on, the forces of good of Aslan and the forces of evil of the witch. And somehow they're involved in this story. Even though they don't really want to be involved, like Peter says, we're not heroes, right? But they had a choice to make. They could either enjoy Narnia, though at some point they would either become slaves of it or slaves of the wicked witch, or they could have returned home through the wardrobe. Or they could stay and live out the reality that was playing around them that they began to realize that their eyes were open to. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, says this about, in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, And above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. The question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness there? Does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to move to this door due to my pride or my mere taste or my personal dislike for this particular doorkeeper? You know, in a, in, in a courtroom, the jury is instructed to look only at the evidence, not to look at the handsome councilman, right? Or not to look at the convict and maybe they're seemingly scraggly appearance, but to look at the facts of the case. What is being said? And is being said, is it truth? And if it is, it demands a verdict. We can't say, well, I don't really feel comfortable with this. It demands something from us. It demands us to say, yes, he's guilty, or no, he's innocent. You know, um, David says this. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. David said, this is true, but you've got to taste it. You've got to try it. I can't tell you about it. Only you can experience it. When, um, When people come to the Lord, a lot of them will come because, not because of Jesus fulfills this prophecy or that prophecy, or that it's, you know, they come to him because there's an immediate need, an immediate need for their life. And Jesus fulfills it. And a lot of people who would say, I'm a rational person, would look at that and say, that's good for them. Good for them that they came to that need. Um, it's good for them. You know, I don't really believe that it's true, but you know what? If it helps them out in their particular situation, awesome. And then some people who are more, I guess, quote-unquote rationally minded will look at, the, um, look at Jesus and say, well, this just isn't true. But they're rational enough to know that if it is or true or isn't true, it demands a verdict, and a verdict demands looking at the evidence. And so what they'll do is they'll take a look at the evidence. So a, a guy like Josh McDowell, 
who was a, or C.S. Lewis, vehement atheist, wanted nothing to do with this fable called Christianity, went and began exploring for themselves. And you know what they found? They found that it was true. Everything they didn't want to be true, they found to be true. And in the end, they're in the same boat as the first group. In the end, they found truth, and they found something that their life desperately longed for. The emptiness that they always had was fulfilled in Christ. And, by the way, the evidence is so sure that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.